passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. June had everything. Well, yeah, at least had everything that you would want or expect in the nation of North Korea. He was one of the leading assistants to Kim Jong-il, uh, the leader of, of North Korea back in that day. And he had everything that you could want in North Korea. Until one day he fell into Kim Jong-il's bad graces and was kicked out of the country. He actually had to flee the country to spare his own life. He went to China and uh, lived close to some of his family members. While he was in China, those family members invited him to go to a church, and he heard the gospel for the first time. He and his wife both became Christians. Shortly after becoming Christians, his pregnant wife was diagnosed and later died from leukemia. And after being kicked out of his home country and, and witnessing his pregnant wife pass away, June spent hours and hours and days studying God's word, pouring over scripture. And as he studied it, he felt God calling him to go back to North Korea, go back to the place where the gospel was illegal and where he could actually be killed for his faith, a place that was far from safe, but the place where he had once lived. He was reluctant. He didn't want to go, and so God decided to make it easy for him. The, the Chinese government caught him, arrested him, because he was a fugitive from North Korea and actually sent him back to North Korea. He spent three years in a North Korean prison because he was a Christian. Miraculously escaped, went back to China, but he was restless when he was living in China. In fact, he was so restless that he felt God calling him to go back to North Korea. And in 2006, he went back to North Korea and was arrested once more because he was a Christian. His family hasn't heard from him since, and it's likely that he was executed because of his religious beliefs. Joseph was a member of the Maasai tribe in Africa, and he became a Christian and felt God calling him to go and share this good news, this gospel, with the farthest, farthest reaches of this tribe. And so he went to those furthest reaches. He went to a, a village that had never heard the gospel before, and he walks into this village and tells the people about the good news of what Jesus has done for them, that Jesus has died for their sins. And these people are so offended that they begin to pick up stones and pelt him with them and stone him, leaving him for dead on the outskirts of town. Miraculously, Joseph lives and crawls to another village where he is nursed back to health. Once he's healthy, he comes back to this village again and again is stoned and left for dead. Again, he miraculously survives and goes to another village and recuperates. A third time, he goes to this village to share the gospel with them. And again, he is met with resistance and is left for dead on the outskirts of town. In the first century, we have countless stories of people who have suffered and died for their faith. In fact, Peter the, the author of our text this morning, his own brother was killed for sharing the gospel with a town not too far from to where the people live that he is writing to. All of Peter's friends, except for one, have been killed because of their belief in Jesus, because of their faith in Christ Jesus. In fact, eventually, Peter himself will die because of his beliefs. You see, suffering is part of what it means to be a Christian. Suffering is a part of God's calling 
for us. Church historians tell us that more people have become Christians in the last 200 years than in the previous 1,800 years of the church's existence. That's a wonderful, encouraging fact about how God is at work and how God continues to work today. But in the same way, in the last 200 years, more people have died for their faith than the previous 1,800 years combined. Suffering is what it means to be a Christian. It's a part of God's calling on our lives. And I I have a question for you as we jump into this morning's text, and that is this. What comes to mind when you hear those stories? What comes to mind when you hear the stories of the suffering of Christians in the first century or, or the suffering of Christians on the other side of the world? Some of us, to be honest, are just kind of numb to the plight of Christians as they suffer because it happens so frequently. We hear stories like what happened this past week in Nigeria of over 2,000 people being killed by radical Muslims at the same time that people are being uh, kicked out of their homes and being forced to be refugees in the Middle East and people are being killed for their faith all over the world. And, And for us, it just becomes numb to us because we hear so many of these stories. For others of us, it might just be something where we don't want to make that commitment because we know it's going to take so much of us. It's going to be too hurtful to get that invested in praying for all of these people who are suffering for their faith. And still others of us might hear these stories and wonder if the gap is just too great. Wonder if the gap between them and us is too big. We know that the Bible talks about suffering for our faith, and we know that it happens in the Middle East and in Africa and in in Asia and, and in the Oceanic countries. But then we look at our own situations, what we have experienced, and it's quite different. And we wonder if the gap is is just too great for us. I'm going to be honest, uh, I feel that way at times. When I open up a passage of scripture like the one we're going to be studying this morning and and see it talk about suffering for righteousness' sake, I begin to wonder if the gap is just too great for us. When I hear stories of people like June and, and Joseph who have died for their faith or have suffered for their faith, I begin to wonder if the gap is just too great. And really, two things happen to me in those situations. First is I feel guilty. I feel guilty because I hear these stories of people who are on the other side of the world suffering for their faith, and yet I don't experience that same kind of suffering. I don't experience the same thing for my beliefs. I'm not threatened for my beliefs. And so I begin to wonder if I'm not as solid of a Christian as those on the other side of the world or those who actually have to suffer for their faith because I live a relatively safe life. First thing is I I feel guilty. Second thing that happens is that I, I really question whether passages like today's text really have anything to say to me. Whether they have anything to say to people in northwest Iowa, in our context, whether God has anything that he can teach us and reveal to us this morning. Maybe you feel the same way. Maybe you hear these kind of stories and you read these kind of passages of scripture and you say, well, that doesn't really apply to me. I I feel kind of guilty because I'm concerned with my child's science project while people on the other side of the world are concerned with whether they're going to get arrested for having a bible or not and we walk away feeling guilty we walk away thinking that this passage of scripture doesn't really have anything to say to us and i just want to encourage you this morning that that's you this has much to say to us god has much to tell us from our 
passage this morning. Today we're going to be wrestling through the question of what do we do when we suffer for our faith? What do we do when we face hardship because of righteousness? Or in other words, as the sermon is titled this morning, how do we handle suffering? What do we do when we suffer for our faith? That's what Peter describes in our passage this morning. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. But before we jump into that, I just want to talk about briefly what exactly it even looks like to suffer for the gospel here in Northwest Iowa, here in the United States. What does it even look like to suffer for righteousness' sake here? And I think there are three ways that we suffer in our context. First way that we suffer is by being called hypocrites. Okay, uh, you probably all heard this before. Uh, one of non-Christians' favorite things to say about Christians is that they are hypocrites, that they don't really practice what they preach, they don't believe the things that they say, and, and all of them are actually just completely judgmental. And, and to be sure, there are a number of people who just attend church that are cultural Christians that are hypocritical. But those who are transformed by the gospel, who are dedicated to Jesus Christ, know that it's not anything that they do that restores their relationship with God, but it's rather what God is doing in them, what God has done for them that restores their relationship with God. When we are called hypocrites, and when we uh, hear that phrase thrown around, it can hurt. It can hurt us on the inside. It's just a word, but it hurts. I think that's one of the ways that we suffer as Christians here in the United States. Another thing is we suffer because of the exclusivity of the gospel. That's a fancy word that basically means that as Christians, we believe that Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the only way for us to be restored into God's presence. And people today don't like to hear that. People today don't like to hear us tell them that the gospel says there's only one way to heaven. That's found in Jesus. You can't go to heaven through what you have done. You can't find your way to heaven through your own good works or through another religion because we're not good enough. The exclusivity of the gospel, the the fact that Jesus is the only way to heaven is another way that we suffer today as Christians when we're called intolerant, when we're called narrow-minded because we refuse to say that any other way to heaven besides God is legitimate. We suffer because of the exclusivity of the gospel. And the third thing is, I think Christians today uh, increasingly suffer because of what the Bible tells us about morality. Increasingly suffer today because of what the Bible tells us about morality. For a very long time, most of the Western nations in the world uh, had their view of morality shaped by what the Bible said. That's starting to change today. Now, our culture today still has a view of morality, but it's very different than what the Bible says. And to to vouch for or to support, to focus on what the Bible says about living a good moral life can result in people getting called bigoted, can result in people being called hateful, intolerant, homophobes, woman-haters, And to hear all of those words thrown out can be extremely hurtful for us as Christians. That's the third way that I think we suffer today in the United States. Now, there can be other ways, but I think that these are the primary three. Hypocrites, the exclusivity of the gospel, and our view of morality. If you notice, all of these different things, they don't really focus on the physical aspects of suffering. 
doesn't really look at the ways that we suffer physically. And that doesn't mean that it's not less important. Frankly, suffering through words can be just as damaging, just as hurtful as losing something physically. Just, for example, look at the younger generation of Christians today. You're seeing a number of younger Christians rejecting what the Bible tells us about morality, rejecting what the Bible says about the exclusivity, the, the one way to God found in Jesus, because they don't want to be called hypocrites. They don't want to be called intolerant. They don't want to be called hateful and bigoted, because those things hurt Those are forms of suffering. It's emotionally draining to experience that much venom and that much hate in our world. And it's in these things that Peter's passage this morning has much to say to us. That's that's why our text this morning is so important for us. See, the church in the United States has to embrace an understanding of what it means to suffer for the gospel. We have to understand what the Bible teaches us about suffering. Now, we can hope and we can pray that we are going to avoid it. There's nothing wrong with praying those prayers and hoping those things. But we have to understand what the Bible tells us about suffering, especially suffering for the sake of righteousness. So how do we respond? How do we respond to these times when we suffer? What is the key to making it through? That's what this text tells us, and I want to focus on just one thing this morning. Everything is going to be wrapped up in this one thing, and that is this, that a fearless focus on Jesus, a fearless focus on Jesus is the foundation for enduring suffering. Focusing on Jesus without fear is the key to making it through suffering. That's where everything is found in the Christian's walk. This is how we make it through physical, emotional, spiritual, intellectual suffering that we may experience today. We do it by looking at Jesus. And as we work our way through this passage this morning, we're going to see that there are three truths that are crucial for us to remember, to help us to remember that a fearless focus on Jesus is the foundation to enduring suffering. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to First uh, Peter chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be printed in your sermon notes as well as on the screen behind me. So please follow along, starting in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Peter starts by telling us something that we have heard time and time again in this gospel, and that is this, that good deeds are God's plan for his children. Good deeds are God's plan for his children. At the very beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, when they were in the garden, God created them for a purpose, and that purpose was for them to do good works. That's the reason why God created us. When we are born again, when we are recreated through Jesus, it's the same purpose. He recreates us for the purpose of doing good. Now, here's the thing that Peter wants us to remember. Our calling to do good works is not conditional. It doesn't matter on on what we are feeling at the time or what we are experiencing at the time. It doesn't matter how well received those are. We are called to do good works, period. That's the calling of the Christian. Here's the good news, though. This calling for us to do good works, most of the time we're not going to suffer for it. 
Most of the time when you do good things, you're not going to suffer for it. That's what Peter is reminding us here in verse 13 when he says this. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? The answer to that question, well, no one's going to harm you. The focus here is most of the time, suffering is the exception, not the rule to doing good. See, Christians and non-Christians alike both benefit from Christians living good, righteous lives, from doing good in their lives. The entire community is blessed when Christians pursue righteousness. Actually, research has shown that churches are very good for communities uh, socially, but even surprisingly, they're very good for communities economically. It's one of the best things for a community socially and economically is for a church to be there because they're zealous for what is good. An example of this is Love Spencer. Love Spencer uh, takes place at the end of April or beginning of May every year. It's a time where most of the churches in Spencer gather together and just commit to doing acts of kindness for Christians and non-Christians alike. It's one of the ways that we bless those in our community. But doing good works doesn't just refer to service projects. Doing good works is much more comprehensive than that. Uh, Good works take place when you try your hardest at school. Good works are taking place when you give it your all at your job, when you are intentional about getting to know your neighbor across the street because you know that they're not a Christian. Those are good works, and many more things are good works. And God wants us to be zealous for those things because that is what he created us for. That is our purpose as Christians. But Peter doesn't just stop there. Peter doesn't just stop by saying you should do good things. He, he doesn't just focus on that. He, he says, what about the times when we suffer for righteousness' sake? What about the times when we do good and we experience hurt in response to that? And he says this, that God will bless us in the midst of those times. God will bless us when we suffer for righteousness' sake. I have a friend who's a past, or who works at a church in a large metro area. And uh, recently, it came to light that one of the pre- people who have attended that church for a number of years, uh, wasn't a Christian, but, but was going to that church for a number of years, had been stealing money from their company for three, four, five years. They had been sitting in the church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and, and something just didn't sink into them. But one day, God, God, God got a hold of them, woke them up, and convicted them, and they became a Christian. And after becoming a Christian, the, the first thing that God convicted them of was their actions at work and said, you need to not only stop doing that, but you need to confess. And so this man goes to his boss, and ironically, his boss was the one who invited him to church for the first time, and goes to his boss and confesses that he's been embezzling money. And because of that act of righteousness, because of the fact that he confessed what he had been doing, he was sent to prison for three years. While in prison, he had the opportunity to get to know and to invest in his fellow inmates and share about the good news of the gospel, about why he had confessed. And now he has an incredible testimony. Do you think God was pleased when he confessed? Absolutely. He was very pleased when this man confessed. And he blessed all of these, this man's efforts because he had confessed in that time, because he had done an act of righteousness. And just think how much more God will bless us if we do good, not in the response to something bad we've done, but just do good, period. 
God will bless us in those times when we suffer for doing good. You might be wondering, well, what exactly does it look like for God to bless us? A couple things. First of all, I think it means that God will bless us with sweeter fellowship with Jesus. You talk to people who have been imprisoned for their faith, and they'll say that the best times, the times where they felt closest to God, were when they were in prison, when they were suffering for Jesus, because God blessed them with a special, sweeter fellowship with him. Second thing that I think God blesses us with when we suffer for righteousness' sake is is prayer. There's no better time, no better way to learn your dependence, to to learn your uh, need for God and for his gospel than when you are suffering for the gospel, when you are suffering for righteousness' sake. And so God blesses those times of prayer. And I think another thing is God will bless us with heavenly rewards. See, Scripture talks about how each and every one of us who's a Christian will receive something from God based on on what we do in this world. For those who do a lot for the kingdom, they will receive many heavenly rewards. For those who don't, they will not receive as many. And that's, that's not referring to salvation. That's just referring to those who are already in the kingdom because of the grace of Jesus. For those who suffer for the gospel, who sacrifice much for the gospel, they will be blessed with many heavenly rewards because God honors those who suffer for him. That's how Peter starts, by focusing on our calling as Christians to do good no matter what. That's an unconditional statement, an unconditional calling for us as Christians to do good in our lives. This is a critical truth for us to remember as we suffer. It's one of the things that that Peter continues to say in the next verse. So uh, pick up where we left off uh, in in verse 14. We're going to pick up halfway through verse 14 here. It says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. I just want to stop right there and look at that sentence. Because I think that this is one of the most important sentences in this passage. He talks first about fear. And then he tells us how to overcome that fear. And what we see is this, that a fear of others is squashed by a trust in Christ. A fear of others is is squashed in a trust in Jesus. See, when we suffer at the hands of others, our our natural uh, inclination is towards fear. We don't want to suffer, and so we run from it. We, We fear those who cause us pain, whether that's physical or emotional. We don't like suffering. And here he tells us how we overcome that fear. It's through trusting in Jesus. You see, the fear of others can be paralyzing. You look at the the history of the church and you see countless examples of people who have gone to the grave because of their faith. And we we look at those stories and we get really encouraged by those. But there are several stories throughout church history of people who have been given the choice of dying or denying Jesus. And they say, I'm going to deny Jesus because I don't want to die. The the church's history is filled with people like this. I can think of no better example than the author of our letter. Remember what happened in Peter's own life. Jesus was going to the cross and Peter said, I'm going to go with you. And yet he denies Jesus because of a fear of others. He rejects Jesus because of a fear of man and what they will do to him. 
And I believe that as Peter is writing this, of have no fear of others, but rather uh, honor in your hearts Christ as holy. As he's saying this, I'm sure he's thinking of what had happened in his past. You see, for decades, he had carried around this baggage. For, for decades, the enemy had used this to accuse him of why he wasn't worthy of sharing the gospel across the nations. And yet, God uses his failure for the glory of his grace. God uses the failure of Peter the one who had rejected Jesus in, in really Jesus' darkest hour and uses that for his own glory. And Peter is an encouragement to us this morning. If you have ever been slandered because of your belief in Jesus, if you've ever uh, experienced ridicule because of that and you've kind of just brushed it off and said, ah, I'm not, not really like that, and afterwards, you feel a little guilty for what you've done. Peter is good news for us because Peter was restored. And look how God used Peter. Peter later dies for his faith. He had a chance to redeem himself before God because he had trusted in Jesus. Jesus puts it this way. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body, uh, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the body, the soul and the body in hell. Our fear should not be on men. We have to overcome that fear. The question is how? How do we overcome those things? Do we uh, trust ourselves in, in popular coping techniques or do we just try to trust in ourselves to get us through these times of fear. That's what Peter answers here. And he tells us the key to overcoming fear in our lives, to the key to overcoming the fear of what others can do to us, is to honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, he's telling us to focus on Jesus. Last week, we looked at the story of Stephen and how Stephen was one of the first people, actually was the first person to die for their belief in Jesus. And we looked at how Stephen, in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of being stoned, he was able to bless those who were doing the worst things imaginable to him. It said that his last words in the gospel, or in the book of Acts, are that he looks up to heaven and he says, God forgive them. But do you know how he was able to forgive them? Do you know how he was able to make it through this difficult experience? It's found in, in verse 55 of Acts chapter 7. It says this, But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. During his suffering, Stephen didn't look at his enemies. During his suffering, Stephen didn't look at his circumstances, what was happening to him. The text tells us that he looked up into heaven and looked at Jesus. When we look at Jesus in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our hardship, what we're saying is we're saying, Jesus, I know that you are in control. I know that it looks like these people who are, are persecuting me right now, who are causing me to suffer right now, it looks like they are in control because I'm pretty helpless right here. But I know that you are the one who is in charge. And that's why I'm looking at you. That's why Peter starts this letter. If you remember several months ago, as we started this letter, we saw Peter begins his 
his letter by looking at a very big picture of God. He tries to give us this very big picture of God, a God that we can trust in in the midst of our hardship and in the midst of our suffering. You're called to look at Jesus in the midst of those times, and that will help us to overcome our fear. Now, you may be wondering how I made that jump from looking at Jesus to, uh, from what is said in the text about honor in your hearts, Christ the Lord as holy. This phrase, uh, honor Christ the Lord as holy, is actually the same verb that's used, uh, it translated differently, but used in the Lord's Prayer, in the first phrase of the Lord's Prayer. You know the, the Lord's Prayer, uh, Jesus was asked by his disciples on how to pray, and, and Jesus teaches them this prayer. And the first line of that prayer is, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And it's, a, it's a cry, it's a petition that God would make his name holy. What's the first thing that Jesus asked for? The thing that's most important in Jesus' mind in the Lord's Prayer, it's that God would make his own name holy. See, the Lord's Prayer is first and foremost, it's a prayer that God would make his name holy, that God would take his own name and he would set it apart for honor, that it would be separated from the entire world. And that's the exact same word that is used here in Peter. It's a, it's a statement of the way to overcome fear is to, in your life, Take Jesus and set him apart for honor. To set him apart in your life to be holy. We are called to honor him above all others with our words, with our actions, with our thoughts. All of our lives are committed to taking Jesus and setting him apart. That's what Jesus is getting at in the Lord's Prayer. That's what Peter is getting at here. That the key to overcoming our fear is relatively simple. In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of the fear that you are experiencing, the key is to think. And you think about this question. How can God be praised in the midst of this? How can God be praised by my response in the midst of my suffering? How can God be praised? Can he be, will he be praised by me cowering in fear in the corner? Or will he be praised by me with a Christ-like gentleness, speaking love to those who speak ill of me? Will Christ be honored? Will God be praised by cussing out those who cause or call slander against us, or rather by praying graciously for those who cause us to suffer? We honor Christ the Lord in our hearts, while we suffer in the midst of our pain by looking at Jesus and seeing how we can praise him and bring honor to him in the midst of those times. One more important point, and that's this, that uh, when you endure suffering for Jesus, you are showing the world his worth. When you endure hardship for Jesus, you're showing the world how much you value him. Look at what's happening in the Middle East right now. In the Middle East, uh, Christians are being kicked out of their homes and they're being forced to flee or be killed by uh, Muslim terrorists. And you look at those stories and you think that, well, that's, they're running because they're scared. 
No, they're, they're running because it was either die, run, or become a Muslim. And the world says, well, why wouldn't you just stay there? Why wouldn't you just convert? Because it's not that big of a deal. And then you can still live among your friends. You can still live where your entire life has been. But the fact that these people are running, yeah, they might be scared, but they're running is telling the people in ISIS and really everyone across the world, they're telling them that Jesus is worth more to me than my stuff. Jesus is worth more to me than my job, than my entire livelihood. I will not, I cannot deny him because how valuable he is to me. And when we endure suffering for Jesus, we do the same thing. We're saying that Christ is worth more than escaping this hardship. And when we, can talk, when we continue to follow him, we're going to get these opportunities to show the world how valuable he is to us. That's the key to squashing a fear in others. It's to look to Jesus, to focus on how you can bring him honor and glory, to set him apart in your life, and to show the world how much you value him. What happens if you're committed to living your life in this way? What, what, what does it look like? Or what's the result of when we decide that Jesus is going to be the focus of our lives rather than our fear in the midst of suffering? That's what Peter closes with. Let's pick up again in verse 15. But, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. See, when we commit to honoring Christ as holy in our hearts, when we know with every fiber of our being that God is big, and when we focus on him in the midst of our hardship and suffering, no matter what, then we have an imperishable hope. God gives us this hope that will help us through the hardest times in our lives. And when others see that rock-solid confidence, when others see that we will endure because of Jesus, that leads to questions. That leads to them asking the question, why? Because it makes no sense in the world's eyes. It makes no sense to the world that you would say what you say and that you would stay with him in the midst of your pain when, to the world's eyes, he is the one who is causing you this pain. And it leads to questions. See, a lot of times people look at verse 15 that we just read here, and they look at it as an, uh, as an apologetic verse, as a reason why you should know uh, all of the different arguments, uh, intellectual arguments for the existence of God. And they say that this is why, this is the verse that is telling you that you should be able to defend your faith with uh, the atheist who comes up to you and wants to get into a debate. And while those things are important, that's not what this verse is saying. This verse isn't setting the bar up here about having to know all of this stuff, uh, about philosophical arguments about God's existence. It is simply a calling for us in the midst of our faithful living to be able to share why we can keep living that way. To be able to share why Jesus helps us through those times. See, when we do good in the community, 
as we said uh, at the beginning of our time together this morning, it, when we do good in the community, when we're focused on righteousness and all that we do, uh, it builds up goodwill in the community. Goodwill always results from us doing good in the community. Now, in some areas, it, it might be a, a lot of goodwill. In, in other areas, it, it might be very little goodwill. But always, every time Christians are committed to doing good, goodwill results from that righteousness. Even those who slander us, Peter tells us, will be put to shame because of our good deeds. Always results in goodwill and community. People want to know why we serve, why we give of our time and our our money to, to love and bless those who are around us. And see, that's the important thing that Peter says here doesn't just end with goodwill. It goes further than that. Goodwill leads to questions, and those questions provide us with opportunities to share the good news with those who are around us. And what Peter is telling us in these last few verses is that when we live faithful lives, no matter what happens to us, whether we live faithful lives and we don't experience hardship and suffering because of it, or whether we do experience hardship and suffering because of it, then we are going to have opportunities to share with others. One of the churches in our denomination down in West Des Moines, a church called Valley Church, and they put it this way. They say, good works create good will, which leads to the good news. Good works create good will, which leads to the good news. That's why here at Crosswinds, we have a desire to bless those outside of our walls. And that's why here at Crosswinds, we, decide, we try to improve in that area each and every week. Because good will will lead to good news. We'll have the opportunity to share that good news with those who are around us. This isn't just about the church, though. This is us as individuals as well. When we're focused on doing good in our lives, whatever that looks like, when we are focused on doing the best job we possibly can, it will give us a platform to be able to share and to speak into the lives of others. Good works create goodwill, which leads to the good news. You see, this calling on our lives is not, uh, is not conditional. It's not something that we can do when we feel like it. God wants us to do good no matter what. And here in the United States today, increasingly that may mean that we will experience slander. On rare occasions, we may even experience physical violence. But our calling as Christians is, to, is the same. It's to do good. It's to focus on Jesus. It's to look for chances to share that good news with others. And what gets us through is focusing on Jesus and a commitment to making him famous. That commitment is what helped people like June make it through. See, when June came back to China after being arrested in North Korea, and then he went back to North Korea, his daughter, who was a high school student, was so confused at the fact that, that, God, that her dad would do this that she began to ask questions. And because her dad wasn't there, she decided to ask her family members and began to study this whole Christianity thing for herself and eventually became a Christian. More miraculous than that, is that she felt God calling her to follow in her father's footsteps as a high schooler 
to go back to North Korea, to bring the gospel to this place where her father had most likely been killed, to share the good news with those people. And so in 2010, four years after she had heard from her father, she went, back, she went to North Korea to share the good news with those who had likely killed her father. In Joseph's life, after he was left for dead a third time, he goes back and, and gets all healed up and, and returns to this village one final time. And the people, as he comes into the village, are shocked. They can't believe that this man that they've tried to kill three times keeps coming back to them to share the good news with him. And so what they do is they have their stones, they put them down, and they decide to listen. Because they're so confused with his life. Now that entire village is Christian. We hear these stories and and we see that as God will use our suffering and God will help us through these times to provide opportunities to share, to provide opportunities to tell people about Jesus. Because when we suffer for our commitment to Jesus, then God will use that to lead to questions. Now, when we hear stories like that, when we hear stories like June's, uh, when we hear stories like Joseph's, uh, stories like Peter's even, we can look at those and and read these kind of passages and and just say, well, that's not realistic. I I can't do that in my life. I'm not that mature in my walk with Jesus. I have to think of my family. I have to think of my wife and my my children. I, I can't do that. As I was studying this past week, I came across a, a tradition. It was a church tradition of what happened to Peter and his wife. See, Peter was married, uh, and he brought his wife on all of his journeys across the world to share the gospel. We don't know much about his wife. We don't even know her name. But there is this church tradition of, of what happened to her. And I just want to share this with you. This is uh, from one of the church fathers. He says this, They say, accordingly, that the blessed Peter, on seeing his wife led to death, rejoiced on her account, on account of her call, on the fact that she was being called home. And he called out to her very encouragingly and comfortingly and addressed her by name and just said, Remember the Lord. And such was the marriage of the blessed and their perfect disposition towards those dearest to him. Peter's final words to his wife are the same words that Peter uses here to focus on Jesus. When Peter wrote this, there's a chance that his wife had already passed away. It's very likely that his brother had already been killed for his faith. A number of his friends already had been killed for his faith. And yet Peter's commitment, his focus on Jesus, allowed him to get through the worst pain imaginable. Allowed him to get through losing his brother, losing his wife, and and eventually dying himself. And so the question is, will you suffer for what is good? Will you suffer for righteousness' sake? The vast majority of us here 
will not experience suffering beyond just a couple verbal jabs here and there. But are you committed to doing good, to trusting in, to focusing on Jesus, no matter what? Are you focused on seeking to set Jesus apart this week, to honor him as holy in all you do this week? That's what this passage is asking for us. That's what this passage desires for us, to do good and to overcome suffering because we have a fearless focus on Jesus. That's Peter's prayer for us, and and that's my prayer for us, that we would set apart Jesus in our lives. Let's pray. God, we thank you for what you have done for us. God, that whenever we may suffer here on this earth, we know that you have gone before us, that you set an example for us, and that through your suffering, You have put an end to our suffering. God, we are so grateful for that. And I pray that you would give us strength and boldness in every situation to be able to set you apart in our lives as holy. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.